Welcome to Lovers Forever. In the last episode, Frank and Ava's affair became public, and they found themselves mired in bad press and public hate. In modern parlance, we might say that Frank and Ava were cancelled. Starting in mid-March 1950, shortly after the scandal broke, Frank was performing at the Copacabana. Against all odds, the show was going well. At least, it was sold out. But reviews were mixed. This was no doubt the critics' chance to pile on while the public perception of Frank was so low. But they also had a point. His voice wasn't what it once was. Mitch Miller, Frank's new boss at Columbia, later recalled, Sinatra had a marvelous voice, but it was very fragile. There were certain guys who could stay up all night and drink and sing the next day, but if Frank didn't get enough sleep or if he drank a lot the night before, it would show up. It was showing up right about now. Ava stayed with him in New York for about two weeks at the Hampshire house, and the whole time she was peppered with telegrams from MGM reminding her that she was late to report for her new movie, Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, which was shooting in England and Spain. Ava didn't care. She decided Frank needed her support. But she did grow bored and restless. She was starting to mix in with Frank's mobster friends, such as Willie Moretti and Joe Fischetti, and she didn't like them. They had none of the qualities that Ava valued in others. They weren't entertaining or genuine, talented or educated. They were drunk on their own power and seemingly proud of the ruthlessness and the violence of their careers. And Moretti in particular was growing more and more disinhibited because of late-stage syphilis. She started to wonder, what did it say about Frank that he liked them? To Ava, these people were just lowlifes. And she correctly assessed that his association with them would come back to bite him in the end. It also just so happened that her ex-husband Artie Shaw was in town. Ava says she went to see him after storming out on Frank at the Copa because of his wandering eye. She did go to Artie's apartment, but it was all above board as far as we know, and Artie's girlfriend Ruth was there. Ava just wanted to talk. Artie claims she asked him, when you and I were, you know, doing it, was it good? Artie says he responded emphatically yes, that if everything else in the relationship had been anywhere near as enjoyable, he would have stayed with her forever. Which, by the way, is such a backhanded compliment. He says she sighed. With him, it's impossible, she said. It's like being in bed with a woman. He's so gentle. It's as though he thinks I'll break. Of course, Artie would say that to make Frank look bad, but it doesn't ring true to me. Artie was a grade-A prick whose arrogance preceded him, 
and who'd harbored a grudge against Frank for decades. Anyway, at one point, there came a knock on the door. It was Frank and his friend Hank Sanicola. Ava admitted she accidentally left her phone book open back at the hotel to the page with Artie's phone number on it. In one account of events, Frank started to yell at Ava. Then Artie's girlfriend tried to stick up for Ava and Frank turned on her. Then Shaw threatened to shoot Frank's guts out. Sinatra climbed up and dramatically exited. Ava followed him soon after. Or, in Ava's own account, Frank is embarrassed that he has not, in fact, caught his woman in bed with another man as expected and leaves without saying anything. Or, in Artie Shaw's account, Ava leaves before Frank even gets there. But whatever happened, it was extremely upsetting for Frank. It had to have been, or else what comes next doesn't make sense at all. Back at the Hampshire House suite, Ava retired to the room she was sharing with her sister, Bappy, and Frank went to his own room. Then her phone rang. It was Frank. I can't stand it any longer. I'm going to kill myself. Now! In her memoir, Ava recalls what happened next. Then there was this tremendous bang in my ear, and I knew it was a revolver shot. My whole mind sort of exploded in a great wave of panic, terror, and shocked disbelief. Oh God, oh God. I threw the phone down and raced across the living room and into Frank's room. I didn't know what I expected to find. A body? And there was a body lying on the bed. Oh God, was he dead? I threw myself on it saying, Frank, Frank. And the face with a rather pale little smile, turned toward me and said, Oh, hello. The revolver smoked in his hand, and his finger was still on the trigger. He'd shot a hole into the mattress. The front desk called. A gunshot in a luxury hotel does not go unnoticed and Frank claimed that nothing happened. The front desk people decided to call the police anyway, so Hank Sanicola was summoned to get rid of the incriminating mattress before the NYPD arrived. According to one telling, he is helped by David O. Selznick, of all people, who was apparently staying down the hall. The newspapers reported multiple versions of the story the next day. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack about this event. Even though it was a fake-out and quite a manipulative one, it still reads as a cry for help. Frank had suffered from mental health problems for years. It's one of the reasons why he was classified 4F and didn't serve in the war. His affair with Ava was intense, offering just as much pain as pleasure. But he was also performing three shows a night, five radio shows a week, plus recording sessions, a grueling schedule by any standard. His records weren't selling, he was only getting bad press, he wasn't earning as much money as he used to, 
and he was far away from his children and utterly racked with guilt and shame about what he was doing to his family. He sent his estranged wife a $10,000 mink coat for her birthday, and she didn't even call to say thank you. I mean, could you blame her? One of his most significant allies, George Evans, had recently died, leaving him without support and battling the press. Frank's mentor and friend at Columbia Records, Manny Sachs, had just left the record label for a new job at RCA. So it's tempting to blame all of his distress on Ava toying with his emotions, but I think that's too narrow of a focus. He was facing pressure from virtually all sides, every aspect of his life. His dependence on alcohol and pills only increased the volatility and intensity of his emotions. As for those who think of Ava as cold and manipulative, and there are those people, especially certain fans of Sinatra's, that too is oversimplified. She could be those things. But by this point, she was risking her career to stay with him. MGM could have dropped her from Pandora and the Flying Dutchman because she still hadn't shown up for test shoots, or they could have suspended her without pay. Studios did that all the time. And there was still the incessant hate mail because her address at the Hampshire house had been published. People were sending letters to her there. Ava must have really loved him in order to stay with him during this time. As we've seen, Ava didn't do anything she didn't want to do. She could have cut and run after the affair came to light, and legions of frumpy, heartland housewives were boycotting her movies and praying for her to die in an airplane crash. She could have reported to London early in order to avoid all the negative attention. But instead, there she was in Frank's dressing room before the show's holding his hand and telling him how wonderful he was, calling the doctor to get him something for his nerves, wiping the sweat from his face, tolerating the dirty jokes of those mobster bums at the nightclub table. She was deeply distressed and probably even traumatized by Sinatra's performance with the revolver and the mattress. And yes, she had known that going to Artie's apartment would infuriate and humiliate Frank, but he had also purposefully provoked her jealousy many times, too. Assigning cut-and-dry blame to them is impossible most of the time. On March 26, 1950, the Daily Mirror reported, The Hollywood Venus girl with hazel eyes, a dimpled chin, and a face and figure film producers pay £20,000 for flew into London yesterday. Then she disappeared, locked herself in her bedroom at Claridge's, ordered that no calls be put through, and went to bed in pajamas because she doesn't like nighties in cold weather. When she and Frank said goodbye to each other at the airport, they wept. Ava was in London to do color tests and dress fittings for Pandora and the Flying Dutchman, a story created by Albert Lewin. He was an MGM production executive and independent writer-director, but he was also an intellectual. 
This was Lewin's first original screenplay, centering on Pandora Reynolds, a beautiful American playgirl living amongst a group of British expatriates on the Mediterranean coast of Spain sometime in the 1930s. It's implied throughout the film that this Pandora is an embodiment of the Pandora of Greek myth, the first woman, an unleasher of chaos unto the world. Pandora Reynolds is bored as hell and unable to feel love, and drives one man to suicide and another to pitch his prized race car over a cliff for her hand in marriage. All the while, she leads on the bullfighter Juan Montalvo. Into this tangled situation sails Hendrik van der Zee, the single occupant of a yacht that anchors in the bay. Pandora swims out to the boat, compelled by some strange impulse. Hendrik, played by James Mason, turns out to be the flying Dutchman of legend, condemned to roam the seas forever because he killed his wife in a fit of jealous rage. His curse of immortality can only be broken when he meets a woman who is willing to die for the love of him. Pandora, as you might have guessed, becomes that woman. The character was described in the script as complex, moody, restless with the discontent of a romantic soul which has not yet found the true object of her desires. Ava said, it is almost me. On April 14th, she and her sister Bappy departed London for Barcelona and then arrived in Tassa de Mar, a small fishing village nestled between the sea and the mountains. It was the perfect setting for a film, so loaded with legend and myth. It contained remnants of archaeology from the Middle Ages, ancient Rome, and even the Paleolithic period. Ava left Spain immediately, in a way that would ultimately change her life. She felt totally at home there. I felt a kinship with the flamenco, she wrote. It was alive then, and pure. The bullfights made for beautiful, exciting pageants, as did the fiestas. I loved it. When Frank was separated from Ava, even for a day or two, he became panicky, desperate to see her again. Every day she was in Spain, he sent her a cable telling her he missed her. Ava was more of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind person. She was having fun, dancing the flamenco in taverns at night, going to parties. The movie shoot itself was also quite demanding. Lewin was somewhat tyrannical about doing dozens of takes and had a lot of complicated compositions in mind that necessitated long shooting days to get right. So Ava had a lot of things going on to occupy her attention. But her feelings about Frank seemed to be turning more complicated. One day... Ava had to shoot a scene by herself where she was supposed to be lost in thought about Hendrik van der Zee. Jeannie Sims, a production assistant, recalled that, quote, she sort of couldn't get it right for Albert Lewin. He was very gentle with her, but he was a bit frustrated that he couldn't quite get what he wanted from her, 
some look of complete absorption in this love affair. Then Al finally went over and said to her, Ava, is there some one person in your life who you love or have loved more than anyone else on earth? And she answered him so quietly I could not hear her. And he told her to think of that person and it was just the impetus she needed. She got it perfect on the next take. Afterwards, I asked Al what she had said, who she had loved more than anyone. And Al said, the clarinet player, Artie Shaw. And you know, I thought, how interesting, because she was thinking of Shaw. And in the newspapers, there was all that talk about Ava and Frank Sinatra. Frank was having a simply awful April. He returned to the Capitol Theater for a one-week engagement. But there were many empty seats. On the 26th, Nancy filed for separate maintenance. She told the reporters who were there at the courthouse that no divorce action was in the works. They were Catholics. And, quote, neither of us wants one. Two days after that, MGM dropped Frank. It was reported that he'd asked to be let go to work in television, but really it was the studio's choice, not his. The supposed reason had been a mean joke Sinatra made about Louis B. Mayer's mistress, but that was just an excuse to offload Frank, who was causing problems for their more lucrative investment, Ava Gardner. At the Copa, Frank's shows had done well, but all of his money was going straight out the door. He owed over a million dollars to the IRS because he hadn't paid his income taxes, and he'd borrowed so much money from his record company that even if his records started selling again, it would be years before he got an actual payout. The settlement with Nancy was going to be expensive, too. Frank had an entourage to support, and he lived very well. But years of living the high life were catching up with him. In the past, Nancy had sort of done the accounts, kept him in line as much as she could. But without her influence, he was in trouble. He also had a cold that wasn't going away. His voice, the one thing he'd always been able to count on, was failing him. Mitch Miller, his new boss at Columbia, came up with a fix for it, for his recording sessions. I could have been kicked out of the musicians' union because tracking was not allowed, said Miller. To what I did to save the session, I just shut off his mic and got good background tracks. Didn't even tell him. Then, after it was over, I said, When your voice is back? We'd come in crazy hours in a locked building, so no union representative could come in. Then, when Frank came in, say, at midnight, we would play the disc. He would put earphones on, and he would sing, just the way they do now. Sinatra greatly respected musicians. He'd never learned to read music himself, but he admired their expertise and talent. He also took a great deal of joy in working directly with musicians. Even as the practice of tracking vocals became more widespread, Frank mostly avoided it. 
The energy of being with the musicians brought out the best in him. He fed off of it, and he gave the musicians everything he had. So for him to be recording behind the backs of the musicians, his voice had to be in rough shape. He would have only gone along with it if it were necessary. The whole time, he was obsessing over Ava. In his way. Marilyn Maxwell started sharing his bed, and there were these four chorus girls at the Copa who kept him company, too. The contradictions of the man. The divisions in his soul. They're almost farcical. Let us imagine a day in the life of Frank Sinatra in 1950. He wakes up at some point in the late afternoon. Beside him, a lovely young showgirl is sleeping, naked, still in her fake eyelashes. He lights a cigarette. He sends a cable to Ava, telling her he loves her and misses her. Then he shaves, lights another cigarette. His hands are shaking. He has to steady himself by leaning on his elbows. He pours himself three fingers of Jack Daniels and briefly surveys the girl in his bed. Then he tries calling Ava. Only transatlantic telecommunication to Catalonia is unreliable, to say the least. The operator tells him the lines are down again. He shoes the showgirl out of his room and prepares himself for the first show. After midnight, he tries calling Ava again. When he does get her on the phone, the connection is full of static, and he can barely hear her. He passionately declares that he loves her, but he can't make out her reply. Did she say she loved him too? And then he does the last show of the night at about 2 a.m., and then climbs into bed with whoever else he can find to console his loneliness. This love I feel for her, it's sapping me of everything I got, he cried to Hank Santacola. By the end of April, there were rumors about Ava and a bullfighter. On May 2nd, during the dinner show at the Copa, Frank couldn't hit a high note while singing the song Valley High. A doctor was called, who ordered him to cancel the rest of the shows for the night. But Hank Senecola told him, Lee Mortimer had bet Jack Entratter $100 that Sinatra would never finish the engagement at the Copa. That Lee Mortimer, the one Frank had punched in the face? So the show went on. At the 2 a.m. show that night, Frank got through his first song, I Have But One Heart, which he dedicated to Ava. When he opened his mouth to sing the next song, It All Depends On You, no sound came out. He dabbled at the corner of his mouth. He thought it was spittle, but there was a trickle of blood on his handkerchief. He just stopped, said Skitch Henderson, who was his band leader at the time. It became so quiet, so intensely quiet in that club. They were like watching a man walk off a cliff. 
Frank raced off the stage and the audience was stunned. He had suffered a submucosal throat hemorrhage and the remaining days of his engagement at the Copa were cancelled. He was ordered to stay silent for at least ten days. To keep up the ban of silence, or to get away from the scene of his abject failure, Sinatra left for a vacation at Charlie Fischetti's mansion on Allison Island in Miami. He laid around, getting a suntan, wrote on a notepad to communicate, and worried about Ava Gardner. Eight days later, he got on an airplane with Jimmy Van Heusen. There had been a picture of Ava with the bullfighter Mario Cabre in one weekly magazine with the caption, This is a real romance, not film. Ava and Frank had discussed his coming to visit her in Spain. Suddenly he decided now was the time. Mario Cabre was a real bullfighter, semi-retired, who was playing a bullfighter in Ava's movie. Ava is cagey about Mario and her memoir, claiming she just had a one-night stand with him, but people who were on set with her remember a more substantial relationship. At first... Ava thought Mario was kind of silly. Like many men, he was obviously infatuated with her, and she didn't take him seriously. But she had really become attracted to him when she saw him in the bullring for the first time. Oh, she really loved it when we went to that first bullfight, production assistant John Hawksworth recalled. It just got into her blood right away. Cabra had made the traditional dedication of the bull to her honor and tossed her his hat. Some of the people there with her have hinted at an erotic undercurrent in Ava's enjoyment of the sport. Soon afterwards, she and Mario were dining together, holding hands, walking along the beach in the moonlight. He spoke no English, and she spoke no Spanish, One of the script girls was called into service sometimes as their translator. Given that they couldn't really communicate without a translator, we can assume that the basis of their connection was largely physical. He started writing poems about her in Spanish. When he read the poems to Ava aloud, according to John Hawksworth, she was very naughty because she would say things to him in English, knowing that he didn't understand and some of the things she said could be pretty derisive. End quote. Mario Cabre was also self-obsessed enough to hope that a connection with Ava would be his ticket to stardom. So he talked about their affair in extremely colorful, passionate terms to the press. He started reciting his Ava poems to any reporter who would listen to him. According to Ava, he even went all the way to Madrid to recite his poems at the American Embassy. Here's a few lines from one poem. How torrid was your blood when you caressed me and plowed your fingernails under my skin. The MGM unit publicists encouraged all of this because the onset romance would be a great distraction from the scandal of Frank and Ava. On May 11th, Frank landed in Barcelona. A crowd of press were waiting for him on the airfield. He was grumpy and not in the mood to talk. Technically, he wasn't supposed to be talking at all because of his throat injury. 
Was he there to visit Ava Gardner? One reporter asked. Yes. Is she your sweetheart? No comment. They filled him in on the latest details of Ava's friendship with Mario Cabre. Sinatra said he didn't know anything about the guy. In his hands was a package wrapped in tissue paper. Someone asked if it was a present for Ava. What do you think, pal? I think it's jewelry for Miss Gardner, somebody said. They had guessed correctly. He had brought her a $10,000 diamond and emerald necklace and a six-pack of Coca-Cola. It wasn't available in Tossa de Mar and Ava missed it. Sinatra said to the reporters, Why don't you people leave me alone? A reporter asked if he had anything else to say. I think Bing Crosby is the best singer in the world. There was a problem. When Frank arrived on the set, Ava wasn't there. In fact, no one knew where she or Mario had gone. Production assistant Jeannie Sims was dispatched to keep Frank distracted while other people searched for Ava. I'm quite sure he knew exactly what was going on, Sims recalled. But he gave no indication. He was really nice to me, even when it got to the point of desperation and I was taking him to meet the electricians and the Spanish crew. They were using a hotel as the base of operations for the movie. Frank was playing poker in the hotel bar with some electricians when Ava finally appeared. She said, Oh, what a lovely surprise! Darling! How great! In the month or so that had passed since they'd been apart, Frank had dropped even more weight, an alarming development for an already thin man. Francis, honey, you look like shit, Ava told him. In Frank's rented car, they drove to a tiny tavern on the beach that Ava liked. There they ate tapas and drank round after round of a powerful homemade aperitif. If Frank had fallen under her spell again, he snapped out of it quickly. So what is it with you and this fucking grease ball? Ava denied anything had happened between her and the bullfighter. Meanwhile, said bullfighter was not taking Sinatra's arrival well at all. John Hawksworth, the production assistant, shared a room with Mario during filming. My bullfighter had no sense of humor whatsoever, said Hawksworth, and he was crazy for Ava, though I think it was completely one-sided. He was in a fury over Sinatra coming all the way from Hollywood to see her, and he said, When I see him, I am going to kill him. He was very serious-sounding. Mario had swords and knives stashed all over the room, so Hawksworth went to Albert Lewin and told him what Mario had said. Lewin agreed that it would be very bad for one of his actors to murder Frank Sinatra, so Lewin had Hawksworth take Mario away to Girona to start rehearsing the bullfight scenes until Sinatra left. A villa was rustled up for Frank in town for the sake of appearances. He watched Ava on set one day, but it bored him, and it irritated him to have to be a supportive partner, quiet on the sidelines. He stayed in his villa during the day after that, and the lovers met later for dinner. Reporters followed him everywhere. At some point, Frank decided it would be better to humor them, 
Let them get it out of their systems. He sipped champagne at the hotel that served as headquarters and answered some of the reporters' questions. Ava is a wonderful girl, he told them. I knew she would be homesick in a strange country, and I know how I would feel if I were alone. Of course, I knew what people would say when I flew here. I am not a youth anymore. I expected this curiosity. Soon it started to rain, and filming paused. Frank and Ava were holed up in her villa with Jimmy Van Heusen. While reporters camped outside the windows, they fought like hell. Sinatra was still simmering with jealousy over the rival whom he knew had been spirited away until he himself left. In between all their fighting, the lovers did manage to have some fun. When the sun came out again, they went tuna fishing and blissfully had a day without arguments. Then the next day, Ava was called back to work. A reporter handed Frank an American newspaper with a story about Nancy. The story said that she had spent Mother's Day without Frank for the first time ever. She hadn't heard from him, and he hadn't sent her a gift, but he could bring Ava Gardner a diamond and emerald necklace while visiting her in Spain. So, out of a guilty conscience, or a desire to attempt to manage his image, Frank cut his visit with Ava short. The lovers had another tearful farewell, and then Jimmy and Frank went to Paris, in the words of biographer James Kaplan, to console themselves with whores. The Broadway columnist Earl Wilson called Frank at the Café Lido in Paris a club that featured bare-breasted chorus girls. Sinatra had to yell to make himself heard above the din, and also because he was mad. He said, This bullfighter is nothing to her. Nothing! Nothing! This girl is very upset because she's had nothing to do with this boy. So much for resting his voice. Later in the interview, Wilson asked if Frank and Ava discussed his getting a divorce so they could get married. Frank replied, I've never said a word about it. Not a word. And here's something you can use. Everybody's talking about Ava and me getting married. Everybody, except Ava and me. Basically, none of what Sinatra says in this interview is true. He and Ava did want to get married even as their respective infidelities, both real and imagined, had injected their love affair with fatal poison. At this point, each of them had legitimate reasons to want to throw in the towel. So why did they continue? Did they have some dream that the fighting and the cheating and press mania would stop? Were they hoping for a peaceful, happy life together once the tumult subsided? Or was the chaos kind of the point? I don't think even they knew. By the way, Frank didn't have the chance to even give Ava the diamond and emerald necklace. It had been impounded by the Spanish authorities on his arrival and only released to Ava once she left the country.
Thanks for listening to Lovers Forever. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by me, Amber Nelson. All of our music is from Epidemic Sound. Our logo was designed by Abby Shield. If you like Lovers Forever, please follow, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. You can follow us online at Lovers Forever Podcast on Instagram. We are distributed by Buzzsprout. Sprout.